Well, again, Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And uh, so today, normally I would tell you what book of the Bible to open up to. And for the last 14 weeks, it's been Exodus, uh, but not today. So um, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to be preaching through uh, different scriptures, kind of various around the Bible today. So you can just read along on the screens with me instead of, unless you're really good at Bible drill when you were a kid, you know, you can just skip the, to it real quick. But um, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig in to the message, and I'll explain a little bit about how we're going to do this today. So Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for, again, just who you are and the fact that we get to be here and celebrate your birth today. Lord, would you help us, give us grace, Holy Spirit, uh, speak to our hearts through the power of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're new with us today, or if this is your first time, uh, here at Kernan, we just finished our sermon series through the book of Exodus last week. Um, and so for those of you who are, are regulars here at Kernan, you know that Exodus uh, it was just really an incredible series that we got to walk through and see those epic stories, right? It's, a, it's an incredible collection of epic stories showing how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and gave them a new identity and a new purpose uh, in this world to show the rest of the world what God is like, right? That's the purpose God gave his people, the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be the light to the rest of the world so that everyone else in the world who worshiped false gods and pagan gods could look at Israel and see the goodness of God in them and the truth of God through them. So, but you know, Exodus is really a prequel, right? It's a prequel in many ways to the rest of the Bible's story. You know, really successful movies have prequels, right? Think about it. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Monsters, Inc., you know, the classics, right? Right? They all have prequels. Well, Exodus is kind of like that. It's kind of like a prequel to the rest of everything that happens in the Bible because it brings to light so much of the backstory of why Jesus came to earth. So on this Christmas morning, as we think about the birth of Christ... Let's see how the great rescue we learned about in Exodus points us to an even greater rescue, a greater Exodus that started 2,000 years ago on that night we just sang about in the town of Bethlehem. So here's what we're going to see this morning. Since we just came out of Exodus, and it is a prequel to the Christmas story, if you will, then here's what I want us to see. How does Exodus point us to the hope of Christmas? How does Exodus point us to the hope of Christmas? Well, number one, the first thing we see in the book of Exodus related to Christmas is that Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. You know, the situations surrounding the, births, the births of Moses and Jesus are actually pretty similar when you look at it. So, so look on the screens with me. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 22 that says, then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Now, first of all, what's the context here? Remember in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people were growing in number and population, 
and Pharaoh was not okay with this. He didn't want an uprising to form. He didn't want a rebellion, a revolution to form from amongst the people. So the Egyptians uh, put them under slavery and they did this. Look at this. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh orders this mass infant genocide to try to tame down the Hebrew population so they can control them. And then look at Exodus chapter 2. In the midst of this terrible historic tragedy and act of evil, we see this. Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son... And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So this son that was born in the midst of this infant genocide is Moses. Moses would grow up to become Israel's leader. Well, guess what? Many years later, there would be another infant genocide in the Middle East. Look at this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had, that he had ascertained from the wise men. So again, this is a terrible, awful tragedy, an act of evil that we see happening to or so many years later after the one in Egypt, now it's happening here in Palestine. So Joseph and Mary, descendants of those same Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, they would have to flee to Egypt for their safety to save their Hebrew child named Jesus. Both babies, Moses and Jesus, fill the readers of these stories with, with great hope and rescue, a great hope of rescue and redemption. And like Moses, Jesus would lead his people out of slavery, but a different kind of slavery, slavery to sin. Like Moses, Jesus would grow up and become the intercessor for his people before a holy God. But Jesus would do what Moses could not do. Jesus himself would become the sacrifice needed for the sins of the people. You see, Jesus is the greater Moses. The second thing we see, how Exodus points us to the Christmas story, is this. Number two, Jesus is the greater Israel. Jesus is the greater Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, look, what, look at how God refers to Israel. He says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now this signifies a very special relationship that the nation of Israel had with God. God refers to them as his firstborn son, as the people in that way. But look at this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This is Joseph, right? Joseph responds to the angel's Warning, and here's what he says, and he wrote, here's what it says, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at this out of Egypt 
I called my son. Think about that. God referred to the nation of Israel as his son, and now he's referring to Jesus as his son. Jesus, now in Egypt, fleeing from this great tragedy, will come out of Egypt, just like Israel. You see, this prophecy from Hosea is showing us that Jesus is the true son of God, the better son only true son. As God's son, Jesus did what Israel failed to do. Jesus was fully obedient to God's commands. He lived a perfect life of obedience. Israel spent 40 years. Think about that. In the book of Exodus and beyond, right? In Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness struggling with sin, rebelling against God, forsaking God and turning to idols. But what did Jesus do? The better Israel, Jesus came and spent 40 days in a wilderness being tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 and not once did he commit any sin. Jesus does what Israel can't do. What we cannot do. He was born in that manger so that he could live the life that you and I can't live. A life of perfect obedience and holiness before a holy God. Think how great a comfort that should be to us. On this Christmas morning, when we when we think about the manger scene, right? That Jesus, when when we think about Christmas, we should think about how Jesus came to earth as our substitute and lived a life that you can't live. And we wish we could live that kind of life, don't we? We like to take credit for things because we want others to think that we're good people. We like to take credit for things because we want to convince ourselves that we're good people. And then somewhere in our deep Deepest part of our soul, we want God to be convinced that we're good enough for Him to love us, to accept us into His family, to give us a home in heaven. You know, many of us think of God, or many of us, excuse me, many of us become weighed down spiritually because we are basing our standing before God on our ability to live a perfect life. Many of us think of God like we do the guy who has a list. Y'all know the list I'm talking about, right? He checks it twice to see if you've been naughty or nice. You know what I mean? Many of us, many of us think of God that way. We think that he's just up in heaven and he's just waiting for us to make a mistake so he can put another check mark by our name and send us to time out. We think that maybe when God is up in heaven and when we do something good, That he's just waiting to to bless us because we did something good. And we think that at the end of our days, when we take our final breath on this earth and our soul stands before God, we think in that moment, many of us think and believe that it's just going to be based on whether we've been good enough or not. If, If God lets us into heaven, that's just fully dependent on if our good outweighs our bad. It's a very commercialized Christmas kind of thought. Some of us, the way we think of our lives before a holy God. But isn't that a very anxious way to live? Think about that. 
If all you're banking on is at the end of your time, when you stand before a holy God, if all your hope is based on how good or bad you've been, well, then how do you know if you've ever been good enough? Where's the litmus test? What's the standard? If that's the rule, what's the standard? How do you know you've been good enough? What an anxious way to live. What a fearful way to live, isn't it? To have a deep fear of death because you don't know what the other side brings. To have a deep fear of relationships because you don't want others to see your faults. To have a deep fear of repentance because you don't know that you can actually turn away from sin because you feel like you are the one that has to keep trying and prove to everyone it's such an anxious way to live. But the gospel tells us a different story. What I just described is essentially a figment of our imaginations, but the gospel tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, He took your sinful record on Himself. Now, how cool is that? Hey, kids, if you make a bad grade in school, how cool would it be if somebody else said, you know what, you give me that bad grade and I'm going to give you my good grades. Boy, that would have been great when I was in school, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Well, guess what? That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He said, let me take your bad grade. Let me take all the mistakes you've ever made, all the fears, all the failures, all the shame. Let me take it on myself and let me give you a free gift that you don't deserve, that you can try to work for and you'll never get. But let me give it to you and receive it through repentance and turning away from yourself as your own savior, turning away from your own good effort. Turn away from that and trust my effort, my completed work. Jesus says, let me give you this salvation as a gift. Let me give you myself. That's the story of Christmas. The gospel tells us that that's what we receive when we turn from our sin and put our hope, our trust, our faith fully in Christ and Christ alone. Not Jesus plus how good I can be, but Jesus and how good he was, period. On the cross when he died, he said, it is finished. His life, his record becomes your record when you put your faith in him. He did what you can't do and praise God for that. He did what Israel failed to do. He did what we failed to do. Jesus is the greater Israel. Number three, not only is Jesus the greater Moses, not only is he the greater Israel, right? But he is the greater tabernacle. Now we talked a lot about the tabernacle in Exodus, didn't we? Exodus chapter 40, at the very end of the whole story, right? What, what did we see? This was just last week, right? Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this was the moment all of Exodus had been waiting for. Remember throughout the book of Exodus, where was God? He was on the top of Mount Sinai. He was on the top of the mountain. No one could approach him except the intercessor, Moses. This was the moment that all of Exodus had been waiting for. God came down the mountain. He came down the mountain to dwell among his people. You see, Christianity, this is what makes Christianity distinct from every other major world religion. Every other major world religion, Buddhism, Islam, uh, Judaism, um, any, any religion really, they all essentially teach the same philosophy. 
right? It's essentially the same message. It's just various different leaders and different beliefs. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. You have to climb the mountain. You have to climb the mountain to get to God. But Christianity turns the whole thing upside down. It's the only message in the world that says, no, 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 no. You can't climb the mountain. God has come down the mountain to you. He has come to us. That's what the Christmas story is about. Look at this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Who? Joseph, right? Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not God above us. Not God on top of the mountain. Not God beside you. God with you. In John chapter 1, the Apostle John described it this way in verse 14, and the Word, capital W, Jesus, the Word became flesh. And what did He do? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the tabernacle in Exodus teaches us that God desires a relationship with us. But the Christmas story, along with the rest of the New Testament, shows us that Jesus is the only way for that to really happen. He's the greater tabernacle. Do you see that? How special, how special and how amazing is it that God wants to live with you, right? Now it's Christmas time. Right, And we welcome all of you relatives who are here and, and maybe you're staying at your relative's house and, or maybe you're going to be traveling and staying with relatives. We're going to do that later this week. And you know that's just a fun time. But can we all just be honest? We all love each other. We all love each other. But after a few days of everybody staying in the house, it's like, all right, time for y'all to go, right? <laughs> we'll see you next year, right? <laughs> but how special... Right, we may get on each other's nerves, but listen to this. How special and how amazing is it that you don't get on God's nerves? That He is patient with you. That He wants to live with you. If you have a relationship with Jesus today, then there's even more amazing news than that. Ready for this? God not only lives with you, He lives in you. You, church, we are the greater tabernacle and temple because Christ lives in us, the Holy Spirit of God. You are the temple of God. His presence is in you wherever you go. Boy, shouldn't that humble us? That should humble us. That should give us courage and confidence all at the same time. How can you be humble and confident at the same time? It's easy, actually, when you turn to Christ. You realize that, wow, I don't deserve Him. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve God to live inside of me. But God does live inside of me, so I'm humbled by that, but I'm courageous and I'm confident because I know that God is with me. He is for me. Who could be against me? 
When we think about Exodus, when we think about Christmas, what do we see? We see a loving God who wants to be with you forever. Jesus is the greater tabernacle. Lastly, number four, Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. He is the greater Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 11 and 12, God tells Moses that he is going to bring a final plague of judgment on the Egyptians for their sin. Remember the plagues? Right? So God instructs Moses to prepare his people to be spared from God's judgment against sin. And the only way, right, the only way they could be spared is if they sacrifice a lamb and smear its blood over the doorpost to their homes. Now in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, we see this. The blood shall be a sign for you, God tells Moses, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is teaching his people what? That sin requires death. But here's the amazing thing. It didn't have to be their death. Sin requires a payment of death for rebelling against the creator God, but it doesn't have to be your death. The lamb without blemish can take your place as a substitute, a perfect sacrifice in their place. The lamb died instead of them. The lamb died instead of them. The lamb's blood was covering their homes. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was telling us that Jesus is the greater Passover Lamb. He is the true Lamb without blemish. He is our substitute, our perfect sacrifice. You know, on the night before Jesus would die on the cross, he was celebrating this Passover meal we just read about with his disciples. But that Passover would be different, wouldn't it? Because it would be the final. It would be the final Passover. The next day, Jesus would do what no one else could do. He would substitute himself. He was the only qualified person to do that. He was the only person that lived that perfect life, the the lamb without spot, the lamb without blemish. It would be the final sacrifice. He would die as the lamb in place of you and me on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. God's own son that came to earth, now giving his life for yours. Listen to this, church. Jesus was born so that he could die. And he died so that you could be born. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, you say, Pastor, what do you mean? Listen to this. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, born again, spiritually speaking, right? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus was born so that He could die, and He died so that you could be born. You know, we love the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We're actually going to sing this in just a minute. There's a verse here that I especially love in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. 
Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Exodus is about new beginnings. Christmas is about new beginnings. Jesus is about new beginnings. Have you experienced this? Have you trusted not just the baby in the manger, but the man on the cross? Have you trusted the man who walked out of the empty tomb? Have you trusted Jesus to be your true sacrifice, your true Savior to rescue you from your slavery to sin? What an amazing Christmas it is. Every Christmas, every day, we get to enjoy the blessings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to finish the rescue mission of Exodus. That, that is what the real Christmas story is really about.